It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 123, King Solomon and the Song of Solomon. Matthew 22:34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Jesus declared in these verses, the greatest commandment is love. The greatest commandment is love. As we arrive at King Solomon and his famous Song of Solomon, we have to discuss the concept of love in marriage and intimacy. So for the sake of this episode, I'm going to take the perspective of the personal application of the revelation of intimacy and marital relations as we cover this topic. And take note here, we'll not be covering the perspective of the Song of Solomon as Jesus and the bridegroom and his church. Instead, we'll be covering intimacy, love, and relationships with the Song of Solomon in this episode. So before we go much further, there should probably be a parental guidance exclaimer for this episode because the Song of Solomon has many sexual overtones. So if you have little ones listening, in case I say anything I shouldn't, please be careful listening. Alright, so let's begin with the historical context. I get the feel Solomon was a hopeless romantic at the beginning of his kingship. In addition, the name God gave him meant beloved. For a whole lot more on this and a primer for this episode, please listen to podcast episode titled, King Solomon the Beloved. If we look at 1 Kings 14.21, we see King Solomon married an Ammonite early on probably even before he became king. She was a foreigner, and her name meant loveliness. It appears Solomon's firstborn male was a product of their marriage, and his name was Rehoboam. We only assume this, for this is the only son of Solomon found in the Bible, which is crazy interesting considering the fact that Solomon will go on to have a crazy number of wives and concubines. But the explosive number of wives and his harem comes later. In addition to the marriage to Nama and the princess of Egypt in his early years, we know he married another woman whose name is unknown, but she goes by the Shulamite. Solomon's romance, and I mean romance, with the Shulamite is a subject of the Song of Solomon. 
So into a polygamous marriage, this Shulamite is hurled. But we never hear ill talk of the polygamy in the Song of Solomon, but exclusively the intimacy between the king and the Shulamite is the topic of the Song of Solomon. So it's a safe assumption that Solomon is married to the Shulamite, since this becomes his norm. For this reason, let's cover biblical marriage and discuss it. God made Adam and made him a helpmeet called a woman. Their intimacy brought about children and the continuation of the human race. It's interesting that God put Adam to sleep and took a rib out of Adam and used it to create Eve. A part of Adam was removed from him, causing him to be incomplete until he was joined with Eve, which is wholly confirmed by Jesus in Matthew 19.5 when he said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Marriage unites a man and a woman, and the act of sexual relations is the holy consummation of this union, which some call a soul tie with this person. But this can sound kind of weird. Let's just say man is not fully complete without his spouse, and this of course goes without speaking of those who are single today and unmarried and those who choose not to marry. But to those who marry and choose to marry, a man is not complete without his wife and a woman without her husband. And it is this act of sexual intimacy that is the most complete consummation of this union. Two are better than one. The sexual act between a man and woman becomes one of many topics of Solomon's poem. It's this interchange between one of his wives and himself. It starts like a love poem. And it goes and goes, and I'm not going to read it all, but there are three sets of characters. Solomon, the beautiful Shulamite, and the daughters of Jerusalem, who are the bystanders or chorus for the poem. The poem is about biblical eros and the right contest as the fullest extent of relationship between a husband and wife that ties and binds two people together. It's the intensity of this moment that binds two people together. In fact, modern science confirms this at the moment of sexual intimacy. A chemical is released inside the body called oxytocin, which is termed the bonding hormone, which creates a euphoric feeling of oneness between a husband and a wife. So God designed this act of intimacy to be confined to marriages. Within the confines of a marriage, it confirms and releases the greatest acts of intimacy and oneness with another that can occur within mankind. And God designed sexual acts to be fulfilling, satisfying, and to fulfill a greater purpose. But outside of the confines of a marriage, the self-gratification without the permanent intimacy with another invites shame, the accuser of the brethren to hurl flaming arrows at a person, for this is termed lust and not God's design for intimacy. In fact, it's this sinful bonding with another, or in the case of Solomon, many others, that will eventually destroy him. I see lust like a doorway to other greater sins. They say this of marijuana, that it's a gateway drug, for it opens the door for other drugs. 
Lust is the entanglement that leads to greater and greater sins. When the eye gates take their eyes off of God and purposefully continually pursue other things until they are enamored and captured by them. Lust blinds the eyes and darkens the heart, while authentic intimacy brightens the eyes and brings light to the heart. Well, Solomon loves his apparently new wife, the Shulamite, and she loves her husband. Here's how it all begins. Song of Solomon, chapter 1. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine, pleasing as the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. So, uh, you get the point? Say you grew up when kissing on the lips was not allowed on television. And you open up this section of the Bible... And it starts with kissing of the lips. Okay, we're over the top already. How about verse 4? Hurry up, bring me to your chambers, a.k.a. the bedroom. If you've never read this book, get the drift. This book is about intimacy. It continues, but not how you suspect. You would think the king would speak next, or they would continue into his bedchambers. No, the speaker actually changes. Song of Solomon 1.4 now the speaker is the daughters of Jerusalem, not Solomon. We rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. Next the Shulamite continues, Song of Solomon 1.5 How right they are to adore you. Dark am I, yet lovely, daughters of Jerusalem. Dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the fields. My own vineyard I had to neglect. Tell me, tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. Why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? So you get the feel there's a running dialogue, possibly like a play where a man and woman are praising each other. And there is a background chorus called the Daughters of Jerusalem. But this is just weird since they're speaking and alluding to their intimacy with each other. Now Solomon speaks and they dialogue with the melodious chorus of the Daughters of Jerusalem. So this is where I have to allude to their dialogue, which is filled with sexual metaphors that are downright weird to us. Check out these a few chapters later. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Yep, her hair was like a flock of goats. It gets stranger and stranger. Your teeth are like flock of sheep just shorn. Your breasts are like two fawns, like two fawns of a gazelle. So aren't you glad no one talks like that anymore? I mean, beyond the metaphors, the poem has kind of a rattling unorganization to it and it actually appears to be written out of chronological order. And some commentators have stated, if it wasn't in the Bible, you would never believe it should have been in the Bible. Here is one summary I found on the net dividing up the story. It begins with an introduction, a dialogue between lovers. 
Next, she recalls a visit of her lover. Then, she addresses the daughters of Jerusalem. Then there's a sighting of the royal wedding procession. A man describes her beauty. The daughters are addressed again, and he describes his lover, who visits him, and it closes with a description of her and the power of love. So I personally struggle with the continuity of the story, but I can't help but understand the power of the inherent blessing of the book. If I try to picture it, my best picture is something of a play with two actors, Solomon and a Shulamite and a chorus, which is situated in the place of an orchestra which cries out and sings periodically. So read it for yourself, and if we continue our comparison to a Shakespearean play, we have to believe it ends in tragedy as well, for we know the future of Solomon that this Shulamite so wonderfully praised will eventually become as unloved as any of the, the rest of Solomon's wives. But regardless of this, it's filled with incredible spiritual meaning, and the inherent blessing is intimacy. I've heard it said if you're having problems with intimacy, with God, with your spouse, read this book and watch what happens. For its inherent blessing will be intimacy regardless of your true understanding of what you are reading. The story continues and has many famous lines. Here's three of them. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. The most common line in the poem is, Do not arouse or waken love until it so desires. And finally, love is as strong as death. So this is my favorite verse from the book, and it's about the power of love. Song of Solomon 8, 6, the message version. Hang my locket around your neck. Wear my ring on your finger. For love is invincible, facing danger and death. Passion laughs at the terrors of hell. The fire of love stops at nothing. It sweeps everything before it. Isn't that incredible? Love is invincible. I just love these verses. Here's the NIV version. Song of Solomon 8.6 Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love as as strong as death, its jealousy as yielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. I just love to chew on this verse from time to time, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. And this is one of those verses I like to bounce around in the Bible versions. I just love the message when it declares love is invincible and passion laughs at the terrors of hell. To conclude this episode of Message to Kings, let's continue with the greatest command of Jesus. Love is the greatest command and the goal of all of life to learn how to love and to become like Jesus and to love like Him and love others like Him. Intimacy with God results in an overflow of love for others. I pray this for all the listeners. Sometimes we strive and strive religiously to do good, but if we just love well, we fulfill God's commands. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you struggle with the relationship or task ahead of you, ask for God to give you his love for this person in front of you, a spouse, a friend, a job, or a task. 
the greatest command is to love. My first public message was at a funeral after the death of one of our friends. My message was the simplicity of the love of God. This is what led Jesus to the cross. This is why he willingly allowed himself to die for the world and be lifted high, to fulfill the law, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. It is this one act of love that freed us from sin and death, that empowers us to live a life of purpose and love. We started the episode with Matthew 22:34, where an expert in the law asked Jesus what the greatest commandment was. But this question was already asked in Luke 10:25, and what followed was the parable of the Good Samaritan. We end this episode with this verse and parable, because only a man touched by the heart of God with an understanding of intimacy and the mercy of God would react in such a way and show the love of God to others like the Good Samaritan did. I love the response of Jesus at the end. Now go and do the same. What a command for us. Come to Jesus and be filled with the love of God and give it away to the others around us. Now go and do the same. Luke 10:25. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus said, Do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If this bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? The expert in the law replied, The one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, Yes, now go and do the same.